0: There are two um, parts, there, there are two kinds of scripture when we approach the Bible um, that address this issue of assurance. The first kind of, of way the Bible addresses this, or the first audience um, the Bible addresses, addresses this issue to, is to those with false assurance. And we've heard a lot about that, and I think um, it's appropriate because most people that you meet have a false assurance. Um, I've never been to a funeral where anyone has ever said to me, They're in a worse place now. Never has happened in my life. And one of the most difficult things for me to do as a pastor is to respond to a person that I know has been a Christ rejecter that has said to me at a funeral that they're in a better place now. Because out of compassion and sensitivity, I don't want to disagree with them. But out of compassion and sensitivity, I do want to disagree with them. Because I want their soul to be saved and I don't want them to be under the false illusion that they can believe or do whatever they want and still have the hope of eternal life. So Scripture addresses this time and time again. It rattles the cages of those with false assurance. Another way that the Bible addresses this subject though is to encourage the believer to know that they have an assurance of eternal life and to give us valid reasons why and to this we turn 1 the Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1-10. through ten. So if you please could um, read along with me in Scripture, or if you don't have a Bible with you, you can take a look up there on the screens. In verse 1 it says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly hearing, in, <clears throat> constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. And listen to this. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. Knowing, brethren, beloved of God, His choice of you. For our Gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be, among for your sake, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having proved to be among you, excuse me, you also become imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. In verse 7, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth From you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. This is God's word. Acts chapter 17 verses 1 through 10 tells us that Paul was preaching in the, in the synagogues of Thessalonica. Thessalonica is a city actually that I've been to in Greece. And he goes into, into the ancient Near East into, this, um, the, into these synagogues, to the Jews and to the Greeks and to the devout women. And the Bible says that upon Paul's preaching in Acts chapter 17, the Thessalonians accepted the message of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Now this would be part of what was Paul's second missionary journey. The book of Acts records three different journeys that Paul went on to many different cities. In the second missionary journey included a mission to the city of Thessalonica. Now he would only he would have to leave after only a few months because of violent persecution that he received in the city. Not everyone there received the message that he preached. Many began to persecute him and he had to flee. Eventually, he um, came to Athens um, and he left Timothy and Silas behind. Now, he sent in Acts 17.15, he sent for Timothy and Silas to come to him in Athens because of the heavy idolatry that he found there. Athens have also been to Athens and in ancient Athens, it was incredibly idolatrous, and they had a host of different gods that they believed in. And this is what Paul ran into when he went to Athens, and he was received with more persecution that he had to leave yet again. Now, leaving Athens, he went on to Corinth. And you can kind of see, I don't know, it might be hard to see up there, but after he leaves Athens, he moves on to Corinth. When he's, Corinth he, we, when he's in Corinth, he's kicked out of three different places where he's preached. Now, I've had the personal privilege of never being run out of a church. <laughs> based on what I'm preaching. But again, who knows what will happen tonight. Um, so, so, but Paul was a, was a persecuted preacher. Now, now when he left Athens, Paul, fa- as I said, he faced additional problems in Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul recalls that he arrived in Corinth in weakness, in fear, and in trembling. Now, that's not how we usually see the Apostle Paul. We see the Apostle Paul as an Adonis of the faith. Someone who is mighty and strong. But for, he, he says of himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, though, <clears throat> that he was filled with weakness, fear, and trembling. This man was discouraged in the ministry. How many people have ever been discouraged in the ministry? <laughs> yes, I, we all have. And we haven't faced the kind of persecution Paul has, but nonetheless, it's still persecution. It's not fun to have relatives not want to be with us. It's not fun to have them pick at our faith and tease us. Who, who wants to go? It's not fun to, to not be accepted in a group of friends that used to accept us. We face this kind of persecution in Christ, as Christians, and we know what it's like. Now, Paul was facing the same, but worse. He didn't have a grace gospel church to go to where everyone loved him and wanted to hear him preach from the Word. He was run out. He didn't have much fruit and most of the people were throwing him out of the pulpits that he was preaching in. Finally, the Bible teaches that Silas and Timothy returned to Paul from Macedonia in Acts chapter 18. And it was at this point, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6 and 9, that Timothy and Silas report that the believers in Thessalonica, surprise, were standing firm in the faith. The believers in Thessalonica, in chapter 3, verse 6 and 7, it says this, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us this good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see... Notice how he said that. You think kindly of us. What a a sentence that must have refreshed him as he wrote it. Because so many people did not think kindly of the Apostle Paul. But they thought kindly of him. And in verse 7, the, the Apostle says this, For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we are comforted he needed that brother he needed that comfort he was encouraged and proclaimed the gospel vigorously from that point forward it says in acts eighteen five. it says when silas and timothy came down from macedonia paul began you see the change of mind at corinth where he was discouraged it shifted to this But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. It fueled an energy and a passion and encouraged him to continue on in the Gospel. Now I'm going to give a little side note here. Brothers and sisters, friends, encourage your pastor. Encourage your pastor. He needs it. And don't think that just because the church is full and that you're listening to us That's enough. He needs to hear the testimony of the gospel in your life. Because that encourages him to continue on. It encourages me to continue on. And trust me, I do youth ministry and it's not (laughs) easy. Right? You guys are all looking at me right now. One of my greatest challenges in teen ministry is to just get them to look at me. Right? And we need it. Encourage your pastor. The Apostle Paul felt the weight of doubt. What makes our church, church what makes you think that? That your pastors don't too. They faced the weight of doubt and discouragement like any, anyone else. But the Thessalonians, he heard of their faith, and their faith infused the Apostle with this great encouragement. And what was that encouragement? Why was he encouraged? Well, he tells us in chapter 1, because he knew that they were chosen by God. He had an assurance that their salvation was real and genuine. And tonight, we're going to learn why he believed that. How is it that the Apostle Paul knew that? Because the way he knew that is the way we know it about our lives. Okay? So first, I just want to say this. We know that Paul was confident that they were saved for two reasons. This isn't telling us why he believed they were saved, just that he believed that they were saved. And the first reason is that in in verse 1, he calls them a church. He calls them a church. Now that's significant. Because in the New Testament, the church is the ekklesia. It's the ek kaleo in Greek. Ek means out and kaleos to be called from. The called out ones. You cannot be called out and not be saved. So the church is the body of saved people. The professing church isn't necessarily part of that church because anyone can come into this building and say, I'm a Christian. I'm called out one. That's easy. But a real Christian is a Christian who has believed the gospel and repented of their sin. So we know this and we know the simple message of the gospel. But it's very important to recognize that when when Paul calls someone part of the church, he stands on saying that with apostolic authority. So he was calling them the church because they were the church. They were the called out ones. They were part of what is the universal body of Christ. Okay? The second reason we know that, that um, Paul believed that these people were Christians um, was because he says in verse 4, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. So he's basically saying, "Now listen to the audacity of this claim. He's saying, I know that God has elected you. <laughs> How many people in this room struggle with knowing that about yourself, (laughs) right? But Paul has the nerve to say, I know that God has elected you, and here's why. And this is why we're here. This is why we're doing this study on assurance. How do we know that our election is sure? How do we know that we have been chosen by God to be part of the ecclesia, the called out ones, those which will stand with him in glory in eternity, with all of their sins forgiven. What was Paul's diagnostic test of these people to give him the assurance of his and their salvation? And that's what we're gonna to see tonight. He says this and it unpacks this in the first ten verses that we just read. Now I want to say this, I want to make a claim here. First Thessalonians chapter one, verses one through ten to me is the hallmark the hallmark passage. On this issue, now many people run to First John, and that's fine. It's obviously filled with much insight about assurance of salvation. But for me, when I read First Thessalonians chapter one, verses one through ten, it is the most impact, in, um, it is the most compact and most helpful passage in all the Bible. When you're asking the question, "How do I know I'm saved?" Read that ten times. Memorize it if you have to, because it tells you everything you need to know right in there. Okay. So how does Paul summarize this? What made Paul so confident? In verse 3, this is what he says. Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. He knew that they were saved he, His knowing His choice of you was dependent on his observation in verse 3, constantly bearing in mind your work of the faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. So the reason he knew that the Lord had chosen them was because of their faith, their love, and their hope that they demonstrated in their lives. This is the reason the Apostle Paul knew that they were chosen by God, part of the ecclesia. And this is the reason why, friends, you and I can stand with the same assurance and the same confidence and know that we are part of the ecclesia, the church of God. Because of the faith, the the faith, excuse me, um, your faith and your work of faith, your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knew of their faith, love and hope. And these are three qualities of, of the Christian character of the follower of Jesus Christ, Colossians chapter one verses five through four through five says this: Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. Notice the order is the same, and the reason it's the same is because love and hope issue forth from faith. You cannot have. Love of the, what is love of the brethren? Love of the brethren is imitation of Christ. It's obedience to God's command as we love Him and love the world around us. The hope, uh, the hope that we have is based on the finished work of Jesus Christ that promises us an eternity in heaven. So without faith, there is no love. There is no desire to imitate Jesus. And without faith, there is no hope. So faith is the foundation of this whole question of assurance. It begins... With faith. And love and hope issue forth from genuine saving faith. What's more though, he adds to this. This is really cool. He calls this a work of faith, a labor of love, and a steadfastness of hope. Now what does this mean? Paul is basically saying here that this indicates that these are a continuous action. This isn't something that you just have one day in your life. And then it goes away. This is something that is kept by the power of God. Philippians, said, Philippians chapter 1 says, He who began this work in you, He will continue it until the day of redemption. So some people worry about like, Oh, if faith needs to endure, how do I know I'm really saved? Because what if my faith doesn't endure? If it's faith, it'll endure. And it won't endure because you decide for it to endure. It'll endure because God makes it endure in you. So you don't have to be afraid of losing your faith. It won't happen. That doesn't happen to believers. If it does happen to believer, to a believer, you didn't believe the gospel at all. Maybe you believe something else besides the gospel, or maybe what you thought was faith wasn't faith at all. Okay. So this continued action isn't a one-shot deal. You don't go to some tent meeting and you get inspired and emotionally aroused and then it's gone on the drive home. As a matter of fact, this faith isn't an emotion at all. It's, it's something that produces an emotion, certainly, but it's a decision. Okay. <clears throat> the Thessalonians knew God's choice of them based on the continual presence of these three distinct Christian characteristics. Friends. Let me ask you a question. Do you find faith in your life towards the Gospel of Jesus Christ? Is it something that continues with you throughout your day? That you remember throughout your day? Because this is a distinguishing mark of a true believer. It's not something that we take with us to church on Sunday and leave there. It characterizes the believer. Now, I want to look at all three of these things Um, in the short time that we have left and unpack a little bit about what they mean. So let's look first of all at the work of faith. At the work of faith. The work of faith is the basis of your assurance of salvation. The work of faith is the basis of your assurance of salvation. Verse 5 is linked, if you remember, to verse 9 because they both identify the moment of saving faith in a person's life. Remember, I said that love and hope issue forth from faith. Faith brings us into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. So faith is the beginning of your salvation. The moment you put personal trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, as the all-sufficient sacrifice, the satisfaction for your sin toward an angry God, is the point at which you entered into saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And in verses 5 and 9, we see this point um, we, we see this point in the Thessalonians' lives marked out for us historically in Scripture. It says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So that point at which the gospel came to the Thessalonians with power is the point at which they turned from idols in verse 9 to the living God. This was the moment at which their eyes were opened to Christ as their Redeemer and substitute. Okay? The beginning of salvation is a faith response to the Gospel. The Gospel is what comes first in power and conviction. The Gospel is what gives you an assurance of salvation and nothing else. The finished work of Jesus Christ, the death and resurrection for your sin and your confidence that it is capable of to remove everything that you've done past, present, and future is the reason why you're saved. It is not because of works of righteousness lest any man should boast. Now here is the essence of saving faith in verse 9. That they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. This is the essence of saving faith. Harry Ironside, one of the most famous preachers of the 20th century, is known as the Prince of dispensational preachers. You hear often of Charles Spurgeon who's called the Prince of Preachers. Um, uh, Dr. H- Ironside, I, I don't know, maybe his fans were trying to seek a title for him, but they called him the Prince of Dispensational Preachers. And he says this, Paul's hearers were convicted of their sin. And remember, I'm describing the essence of saving faith. What, is the, what does faith include? What is the object of faith? What is it that you're believing? Because a lot of people have faith in a Christ that they've made up. And that's not the Gospel. So why do, why do people have a false assurance that seem to be Christian? Because they don't know what the Gospel is. They believe something, but they don't believe the Gospel. So what's important here is the object of your faith. Your salvation is as only sec- as secure as the Gospel in which saved it. You follow me? So Einstein says this, Paul's hearers were convicted of their sin. They realized something of the corruption of their lives. Remember, these people were idolaters. They were worshiping pagan gods, many of them. And the Bible says that they turned from that idolatry to serve the living and true God. They turned to God as repentant sinners and believed the gospel they heard preached. And what was the result? They became new creatures. Their outward behavior reflected their inward change. When you turn from a false lord to a true lord... The consequence is a new direction of obedience. Your Lord is whoever you obey. When you obey a false God, you obey that when if if you're following a false God, that's the God you're going to obey. When you turn to Christ as Lord, it follows that the fruit of that will be an obedience of life. But please understand that obedience is not the basis of your assurance. The cross of Jesus Christ is the basis of your assurance. What's important is that the gospel came to them in power because they believed the gospel. They believed the gospel. It was the gospel that saved them, and it's the gospel that assured them of salvation, because in Romans chapter 1, it is the gospel that is the power of salvation to those who believe. And the Bible makes clear in Romans chapter 4 that the just shall live by faith alone. So it is faith and confidence in the work of Christ for you that forgives all of your sin at the cross. He paid it all. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. We didn't pay a penny of it. And if you think that you paid a penny of it, you pay all of it. It's all Christ at the cross or it's all you. So what's important is that the Gospel was believed by the Thessalonians. And it was the Gospel that saved them and changed them. And this change in their life is what wrought in their lives their basis of assurance. You are not assured of salvation. This might sound a little controversial. And I don't like controversy. I really don't. Some people do, but I don't. But, um, but here, here we go. Let's go. Let's do it. You are not assured of salvation because you have a changed life. You are not assured of salvation because you have a changed life. You, believer, and remember, I'm talking to believers, you are assured of salvation because of the work done for you at the cross. And because you have believed that, it has changed your life. Don't confuse the two. Now, the changed life is an evidence of saving faith, but it is not an assurance of salvation. Only the cross can give us an assurance of salvation because it's only the cross that can save us. You see? Now, some people might hear this and say, okay, cool, I can do what I want now. (laughs) I'll get to that in a second. Jared Wilson, he's a um, pastor, actually in Vermont, young pastor, he said this, if the measure of your perfection is the measure of your assurance, you will always be a timid, fearful Christian. Want to know why? Because you fail. If you always think, like, the only way that I'm assured of my salvation is if I'm behaving right every day then you're always going to be afraid if you ever really got saved. Because you struggle with the flesh. The flesh wages war against the Spirit. And we recognize this, this fleshly battle in us. And if all we're looking to for our assurance all the time is the way we're performing from day to day, then we're going to have a weak, unstable assurance of salvation. At, at, at best, at worst, there's a potential that you might believe in a works gospel. Because if you, if you base your assurance on works, it could be that you think that it's your works that are saving you. And, that, and it certainly is not. But, he says, if, you, if your measure of assurance is the perfection of Jesus Christ, you will possess an ever-increasing confidence of the hope of eternal life. You will possess an ever-increasing confidence of the hope of eternal life. The basis of our salvation is Christ's finished work. And this is applied to us in the exercise of faith, not in the exercise of certain feelings. Now, Ironside says this to continue. And this is really, this is a, may, perhaps a bit lengthy, but please follow this for a moment. Perhaps someone may ask, does it make no difference to God then what I am myself? In other words, okay, cool. I'm, I'm, you know, my assurance of salvation is the finished work of Christ. So does that mean I can do what I want? sin may i live on in my sins and still be saved he says no assuredly not the moment one believes the gospel he's born again and receives a new life and a new nature a nature that hates sin and loves holiness do you now hate and detest the wicked things that once gave you a certain degree of delight all this is the evidence of a new nature And as you walk with God, you will find that the daily power of the indwelling Holy Spirit will give you practical deliverance from the dominion of sin. This line of truth... Now, please hear this. This is why I'm reading this. This line of truth does not touch the question of your salvation. It is the outcome of your salvation. First, get this settled. You are not justified by anything done in you, but by by what Jesus did for you on the cross. It is such an important... Thing to remember. Acceptable service springs from the knowledge that the question of salvation is forever settled in the cross of Christ. Acceptable service, our works as Christians, <clears throat> is forever settled and it springs forth from the knowledge that the question of our salvation has already been dealt with at the cross of Jesus Christ. And I think, I can't help but think of that famous hymn, Just as I am without one plea, but that Thy blood was shed for me, and that Thou bidst me come to Thee, O Lamb of God, I come. And rock of ages, for me, let me hide myself in Thee. Let the water and the blood from Thy wounded side which flowed be of sin a double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure." You see, the work of Christ, here's why the believer doesn't continue on in sin. Because the work of Christ is the double cure. It doesn't just cure you from the the wrath of God in hell. It cures you from sin. And the believer doesn't want to look for reasons to continue in in sin. But please understand that your assurance of salvation is isn't there because of that desire. It's there because of what Jesus has wrought for you in the cross of Jesus Christ. It's grace. It's all grace. It's undeserved favor and merit given to us. Calvin says this. In case you might think this isn't um, Calvinism. For those of you who might care about that. (laughs) Calvin says this. Therefore, lay aside all mention of the law and all idea of works. We must in the matter of justification have recourse to the mercy of God only. Turning away our regard from ourselves, we must look only to Christ. For the question is not how we may be righteous, but how, though unworthy and unrighteous, may we be regarded as righteous. Beautiful. If consciences would obtain any assurance of this... In other words, if you're going to have any assurance that you're justified before God and made righteous. They they must give no place to works. They must give no place to the law. For when the conscience feels anxious as to how it may have the favor of God and as to the answer it could give and the comp- and the confidence it would feel, it brought to his judgment, if brought to his judgment seat, in such a case the requirements of the law are not to be brought forward, but Christ's is to be brought. Who surpasses all the perfection of the law is alone to be held forth for righteousness. So in other words, how do I know that when I get to heaven, or the judgment seat, hypothetically, that God's going to declare me righteous? It's not because I'm good. And it's not because I'm obeying Jesus today. The reason I obey Jesus today is because He died for me. And He bore my sins. So when I approach the judgment seat of Christ, I don't give Him my works. I give Him the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I stand on His blood as the only and all sufficient satisfaction for the wrath of God. So friends, have you believed in, this, in the blood of Christ as the satisfaction, the only satisfaction for your wretched sins? Because if there is anything... That you believe is making you holy before God and giving you your own righteousness to stand on before Him, you will be condemned to an eternity in hell. He is all our righteousness, not some. He is all our righteousness. The gospel can come in no other way but in power. Now, this is my second point. The basis of our assurance is the work of faith in Jesus Christ's finished work at the cross. The evidence of our faith as saving comes forth in two ways, a labor of love and a steadfastness of hope. How do I know that I have believed the gospel and understood the gospel? It will demonstrate itself in your life in two different ways. The way that I always explain this is very simple. You can't believe the gospel and be unsaved. OK, but, but wait, wait, I know people that say they believe the gospel and they live like hell. Well, you just said it. They say they believe the gospel and they live like hell. If I were to tell you that, that I believe that all snakes were poisonous. okay, I use this illustration sometimes with the kids. If I said, I believe all snakes are poisonous. And then like three of them just kind of started hissing up around me up here. And I'm fine. And I grab two of them by the tail and I start winging them around my head and I throw them into the audience, right? What's going to happen? You're going to say, "Hey, wait a minute. I thought you said you believed all snakes are poisonous. You don't really believe that, do you? Because what you believe affects the decisions that you make, right? Hey, uh, um, Brother Moses, I put a bomb in your car. Okay? When you go out to your car and you turn the key, it's going to explode and you're going to die. What's he going to do if he believes me? Unless he, doesn't, unless he wants to die. Right? What's he going to do if he believes me? He's not going to go on his car, right? He's not going to turn the key. Because what you believe affects what you do. So, faith isn't the problem for an unsaved person. Everyone has faith. Okay? The object of faith is the problem. They might not believe the Gospel. And for some of the, someone with a false assurance, the faith isn't the problem. What they believe is the problem. Maybe they don't believe they're really a sinner. Maybe they don't believe that Jesus is Lord. I don't know. But if they take an element out of the Gospel, they, they make it not the Gospel and they're therefore not saved. But when you understand that your sin is a wretch toward God in, in deserving of guilty punishment, when you understand that He is Lord and you owed Him your obedience and you didn't give it to Him, these are all elements of the Gospel. When you also understand that, that you can't bring anything to Him to make up for it, that it's, that it's a work that He did, died for at the cross... That's an element of the gospel. You can't take any of those out of there and have it still be the gospel. So if someone says, yeah, how do you, well, I believe that Jesus has died for my sins on the cross, they memorize something. When I was a boy, no offense, Pastor, but when I was a boy, Pastor Martel said, what are you going to do when you get to, get to the judgment seat? What are you going to tell God to, that He's going to make you let you come into heaven? And then he would give us the answer. Jesus Christ died for my sins. And all, you know, the whole thing. So when I was a boy at my crayons and I wrote it down and I put it in my pocket because I I thought like when I get to heaven I don't want to forget what to say. <laughs> right? So so I'm gonna make sure because if I mess up a word I'm gonna end up in the, the fiery furnace and I don't want to go there. So so I, I wrote this thing down and I was I like, wanna make sure that I remember this thing. Now now let me tell you something. That's not saving faith. That's not believing the Gospel. That's Those are magic words. Okay? That's hocus-pocus. That's climb this mountain and eat this berry and you'll be fine and rid of your disease. Okay, I'll do it. That's not coming into a relationship with Christ as Lord and Savior. That's the Gospel. So if you believe something besides the Gospel, you're not saved. So the question is not, did, did you believe and confess or surrender or or repent or what all these other different words that we can. i think those are those are part of you know it's not wrong to use those words in presenting the gospel message but the problem isn't with the word faith sometimes christians are afraid of saying that all you have to do to be saved is believe in jesus christ as lord and savior we have a problem with saying that but let me tell you something the problem isn't with faith the problem is with the object of faith what is it that you believe the gospel is and what is it that you believe faith is? Because faith isn't just rattling off some kind of answer that you heard somewhere. Faith is investment. Faith is trust. Okay? very, very important to make these distinctions. Now, the evidence of faith, when we have this faith, is a labor of love, that is we imitate Jesus Christ and a steadfastness of faith. And I'm going to blast through this because I'm running out of time here. It's a, steadfast, uh, a labor of love that is, they became imitators of Christ. And verse 6, it says this, You also, here's how I know that your faith was real and that you actually believed the real gospel. Because you became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So the, the mark of genuine saving faith is imitation. And how do we know this? They became imitators imitators of us and the lord when you believe that jesus is lord and you can and you repent of your sin and believe that the the work of christ at the cross um, was done for you in your place you you naturally transition into the desire to imitate him that's an evidence that you've really understood the problem of your sin and the gift of christ at the cross It's a new desire. That's what the word repentance means. It means a change of attitude about something. You are not saved unless you change your attitude about your sin and about the Savior. The Bible is so clear about this. That's the Gospel. Okay? So the mark of saving faith is is that of imitation. We know that our faith is genuine and real because it, it produces in us a desire to imitate Christ. It's a change of attitude um, must follow this real faith in Jesus. Paul was sure that the Thessalonians had really understood and believed the gospel because they looked like their Lord. It's not that they never failed, but their desires had changed. MacArthur, John MacArthur says this, A true Christian can still sin and may even do so frequently. But sinning frequently is not the same as practicing sin. And he, he's remarking on 1 John there. And what he's basically saying is that the, the, John says that no, no one um, who is of the Father continues in sin or practices sin. What he's saying is that there's a, there's a kind of person out there that has no problem with their sin. They're completely comfortable with it. Okay, The believer still sins, but they are no longer comfortable with it. Okay? Now that's not to say that there aren't prevailing sins that they're still comfortable with because we're all in the process of sanctification and there are times where we don't even know something is a sin yet. And as God's Word continues to get revealed to us, we start understanding more and we heard that last week. We start understanding more areas of our lives. But the, problem, the, the difference is that the posture towards sin is the same. is different, excuse me. So that there's no longer this comfortability in the life. So the mark of so a mark of saving faith is an imitation of Christ, a new desire to, to live in holiness. First Peter chapter two, verse twenty one says this for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. He called you to salvation for the purpose of Christ like imitation. Okay. <clears throat> the second thing that we see here um, is a steadfastness of hope. A steadfastness of hope. In verse 9, it says this For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned from God, uh, excuse me, to God, from idols, to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So these believers obtained by their faith, a new identity and a new purpose for their lives. And that purpose was wrapped up in the coming of Jesus Christ. They no longer saw themselves as citizens of this world, but as sojourners. The reason the believer wants to imitate Christ and wants to follow Jesus and wants to look like Him is because he believes that he is returning to bring unto us a kingdom without end. And that kingdom is the kingdom that we live for presently. So the purpose, the, identi- the identity shifts in the believer's lives. It's no longer to get married. It's no longer to gamble. It's no longer to have sex. It's no longer to fill in the blank. To be a great lawyer, a lawyer, a doctor. The, the identity is now wrapped up with the hope of eternal life. And the word hope is a beautiful word. It's not like we use it today. I hope it doesn't rain today. It's like a wishful kind of thing, a wishful guess, hope in the Bible is El pidas, and it means a confident expectation that something will happen based on the veracity of god's word. in other words, God's word is true, He does not lie, it does not come back void, and because of that, I know in Revelation chapter one, these things must take place. the absolute certainty of eternal life is the hope the birthright of all true believers of Jesus Christ. So we have a hope because of the, the the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to a seat of honor and kingly authority by our Jesus Christ who, for, who forever lives to make intercession for you and I. So what does the believer do when he falls? He doesn't question his salvation. You know what he does? He says... He is the propitiation for my sin. And not my sin only, but the sin of the whole world. John said that to believers. He said, Listen, you have sin. But here, let's turn there. I wasn't going to go here, but this is important. First, chap, First John chapter 2. <clears throat> Oh gosh! <laughs> I'll find it. I know where it is. First <clears throat> John chapter two. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you might not sin. But if you do sin, right? Oh oh gosh! Church, please hear that. That's us, right? That's every Christian that's ever lived. Okay, my little children, I'm writing to you these things that you may not sin. But if you do sin, we have an Advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous, who forever, in Hebrews chapter 7, lives to make intercession for you and I. He is our great High Priest, who presently, right now, when we fail, stands before the judgment seat of, Christ, of God with His blood that is the propitiation for your sin and for mine. So the posture of the believer towards a failing is not one of fear, but one of claiming the the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And by the way, that is not in contradiction to what you've been hearing from this pulpit. Because what you've been hearing for this pulpit is not for the Christian with their momentary failings. It is for the unbeliever that is comfortable with a lifestyle of sin of which no, no propitiation has ever been made because that person is not in Christ. But once you are in Christ, you are protected by the blood of Christ. And that is, as we said before, not a motivation to sin. But the new life in you is always a motivation to continue on in holiness and Christ-like imitation. So the steadfastness of hope continues. Now some might say, and I, I kind of alluded, let me conclude with this. <clears throat> I, I kind of alluded this to this earlier. Some might, might say, if my faith, hope, and love must endure, right? We talked about this. It's got to continue. It's not a moment thing. Then how do I know that, I, that I'm saved until the end of my life? Until I've actually seen it endure, right? Those who endure to the end will be saved. How do I know that it's an enduring faith? And can't I not be sure of salvation until the end? Isn't that, isn't that logical? Doesn't that make sense? If that's the way we look at it. I want you to consider as I paraphrase again Dr. Ironside on this. I want you to suppose God told Noah to build an ark, but not enter inside of it. Instead, when the floods came, they were to hold on to some posts or some pikes that they would nail into the side. And during the flood and the storm, they were to hold on to these these posts in the ark as the rains and the, the waves crashed against them. Now, how many people would be able to survive that. Imagine God saying, hold on to the ends and you'll be saved. None would survive unless we're in the ark. And our faith is protected by the power of God through the finished work of Christ and His blood. Then we don't have to worry. Our faith will endure because it's there by God's gift, not by our might. This is a very different thing than holding on inside the ark, Ironside says. They were safe as long as they endured the storm. And every believer is in Christ and is as safe as God can make him. Now look away then from self-effort and trust in Him alone. Rest in the ark and rejoice in God's great salvation. And be sure to remember that it is Christ who holds you and not you who holds Christ. Please join with me in prayer. Father, I thank You so much that you hold us. Father, I thank you so much that you are the author and finisher of our salvation from beginning to ending. I thank you that you have brought in us faith in the work of Christ at the cross. And God, I thank you that, that that work of faith will continue, that labor of love will produce fruit, and that steadfastness of hope <clears throat> will hold us and give us a confidence of your coming in our eternal life. God, I thank you again for this time that you've given us, bless our... the remainder of our fellowship.